Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. So I wanted to just summarize what I would hope that you would get out of the Dutch hunger famine of 1944-45 and the comparisons we've made. So it was, in essence, a never-been-existed-before experience of being so well-documented and having such a beginning, precise point of a large population going into starvation mode for a period of about seven months, and then ending at a very precise time with they were healthy before and they had everything possible afterwards. So that's almost like a laboratory experiment in the sense of what you do with mice and rats and goats or whoever else you want to experiment on to see what happens in those situations. Famines don't happen that way. Usually there's a gradual, poor agricultural harvest and it goes for a couple of years. So it gradually gets worse and worse and worse, and then it gradually gets better and better and better. So this was nothing like that. This was a very boxed-in period of time. And so what we learned about that is not only the different times, the different portions of a woman's pregnancy, gestation for the fetus, for the embryo, and its experience within the mother during the uh, famine, but we also learned when these children are born, what were they like? That was pretty measurable to an extent, but those who had a portion of their gestation exposed to famine, but not the entire gestation, that they didn't, were not born small, something easily that you could measure. You know, so it wasn't like black and white, look like normal kids. Hmm, what's up? Well, they had elevated rates of diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. And then later it was discovered they had triple the rates of schizophrenia. How's that? So these were things that only time could release, only time could tell. It's diabetes did not start on day one. Diabetes creeped in on the second or third decade of their life. And certainly the schizophrenia was the second or third or beyond. And then we got in beyond that to, and these people who are the sons and daughters of the people who are born are now in their, let's see, 44, where they're now in their mid seventies. And so the data is still there. And now we have data on their children. So the takeaway was that there are very delayed fetal origins of adult diseases uh, as a hypothesis, was really crystallized there. It was, and the data is still accessible. These people are still living. And uh, so that was the big takeaway. Wow, there is something that we're not seeing upon birth that may 
be manifested in the subsequent decades of life in the future. That was kind of the basic takeaway. And they compared it to other famines, as I mentioned, the seas of Leningrad, which was different, did not have the increase in diabetes and uh, cardiovascular disease and obesity. It's because, yes, as much as their famine, the siege ended, they were still in somewhat famine. And it was a gradual buildup over the years, if not decades, for them to have a substantial community again in terms of nutritional food, calories, and nutrients. So that's the difference, big difference. All right, so now we're going on to what I think is the really impressive thinking by one man, by one man who was just curious and he put his work together and it was refused for the longest period of time. So let me jump in. So, and I've communicated with this. I've corresponded with this person and we'll get to that later. In the 1980s, Dr. Lars Olav Bregen, he's a Swede who grew up in Northern Norway above the Arctic Circle in a place called Lapland, Norbotanen. And uh, not that you need to know that, but his family went back to the 1400s. So he took it upon himself. He's, he was, uh, as an adult, and still is, a preventative health specialist, not an MD, but a PhD, who now works at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which is the top uh, research institute for Sweden. And so he began to wonder what the long-term effects of feast and famine years might have on children growing up in that area in the 1800s, the 19th century, and not just on them, but on their subsequent kids and grandkids. So still the same thing, but it's, he's going back in time as we came forward in time looking at the Dutch famine. So he drew a random 99 individuals born in Overcalix. So it's going to be called the Overcalix study, by the way. Overcalix Parish of Norbotanen in 1905. So he drew 99 individuals and he used the historic records to trace their parents and grandparents back to their births. So he's going backwards even further. So this is all possible because you're in a culture in this particular part of northern Sweden, Sweden in general, you could say, but northern Sweden, in which one, it was a monoculture, right? So now we're going to the 1900s, going back into the 1800s. So there wasn't a lot of moving around. And it happened to be an area in which their culture was record keeping. So they kept all the records of the crops that grew, that they were growing, how much was harvested, they, all the measurements, and what failed. And as an overlay to all these particular notes, documentation, you also had the local parish. You know, they kept the records of the births and deaths as well. So putting these together, it was very well documented to go back. Boom. So he went back nearly 100 years. So a number of generations. Okay. So by analyzing meticulous agricultural records, Dr. Bergren and two colleagues were determined how much food had been available to the parents and grandparents when they were young. Around the time he started collecting the data, Brigren had become fascinated with research showing that conditions in the womb could affect your health, not only when you were a fetus, but into adulthood. So he's thinking, and this is, as I said, in the 80s, this is, now remember, the first study just came out of the Dutch famine in 76. So he's now ruminating on some of those conclusions. So, hmm, I wonder what that... Let's do another context. And he's setting up another context. So in 1986, for example, The Lancet published the first of two groundbreaking papers show that if pregnant women ate poorly, 
per children would be at significantly higher than average risk for cardiovascular disease as an adult, which is more or less what it, that's a general form of what I just told you about before. So he wondered whether that effect could start even before pregnancy. Could parents' experiences early in their lives somehow change the traits they passed to their offspring? It took many years, and his group, a small group, submitted to many journals. Bergen says, scientists who reviewed and rejected his paper for the publication did not quibble with the statistics or any of the data. They simply said, it's impossible, and dismissed him out of hand. The results cannot be that way. You know, this is impossible. Isn't that interesting? Where have we heard that before, right? As the rejections piled up from journals, Brigren started scanning scientific literature for anybody else who might have similar findings. So in 2000, 14 years, he's been trying to get this published for 14 years on work he did starting in the 80s. And now we're pretty much 25 years after the first Dutch famine research paper had come out. And now there's a number of subsequent ones as well. So he contacted an MD who was an epidemiologist and uh, physician. He contacted Dr. Marcus Pembry, a clinical geneticist at the Institute for the Child Health in London, and told him about the overcalyx data. Brigren had read Pembry's work on children who were missing part of the DNA sequence from chromosome number 15. This gets interesting. So Pembry's work was he was discerning you know, as he said, its baffling aspect was not that the DNA deletion caused the disease. So he's not arguing about that. But that which disease each child had dependent on whether the DNA was missing from the chromosome 15 that came from the father or did it come from the mother. So the same chromosome with the same piece missing on chromosome number 15, if it came from the mother, it was one disease and it came from the father, it was another disease. If the DNA deletion was inherited from the father, the child got Prada Prater Willi syndrome. Prater Willi syndrome is when a child has an insatiable hunger and it leads to extreme obesity. The life is possible. If the identical DNA sequence deletion was inherited from the mother, it confers a thing called Angelman syndrome. And what's interesting, I actually had two patients way back when that had come in with the children at Angelman syndrome, and they were seeking anything possible. I saw them within a month of getting the diagnosis for their two little girls. They're separate people, and they both had little girls. So I do have some firsthand experience with the Angelman syndrome. It's a severe mental impairment that leaves children unable to speak and with herky-jerky movements, kind of spasticity. So, however, the DNA deletion on the chromosome 15 had a record of whether it came from the mother or the father. There's no difference between the DNA sequence at all, so something else, some memory of where the chromosome had been was getting passed down. So as with the overcalyx data that Dr. Bregren had done, Dr. Prembry from the UK, it appeared that something other than DNA was actually moving between the generations. So you see where we're going with this, right? Okay then. I got the overcalyx study and this work that does finally get published ends up being groundbreaking and it really is the first time in which the concept of epigenetics, that there is something else besides your DNA, can be talked about, can be studied, 
can be quantified. Before, it was just this idea, well, something's being passed from generation to generation. How do we know this? You know, what, what's happening? So what Brigren found is beginning in 1984, they assembled, they had 90 what they call pedigrees going back to these families, these 99 people that worked it down in 94, went back a number of generations. So they selected people who were born in over Calix in 1905, and they went back even further to find out, and I'm just going to kind of go to the to the conclusion pretty much, that the over Calix boys who had experienced a feast season when they were just at pre-puberty, so pre-puberty, and puberty varies as we go forward in time, but it was around 9 to 12 years old. Why boys and why pre-puberty? Because in puberty, going into a teenager for boys, that is when their gametes, that is when their sperm actually become sperm producers, but it's not in them before. So this is finally coming together as boys grow up to be able to produce sperm. So the slow growth period prior to pre-puberty is when they're actually putting all the all the influences on gametogenesis, if you want to need a word, is being sponged up. So this what they call the slow growth period pre-puberty. Okay, pre-puberty, a time when sperm cells are maturing. These kids who had experienced the feast season, they died on average six years earlier than grandsons of overcalic boys who had been exposed to a famine season during the same pre-puberty window, slow growth period, and often diabetes. When a statistical model controlled for socioeconomic factors, a difference in lifespan became way up to 32 years. If their grandparents grew up during a period of feast, of healthy harvest for a number of consecutive years while they were pre-puberty, versus the group that grew up and there was a famine during their slow growth period. So the difference was 32 years, all dependent simply on whether a boy's grandfather had experienced one single season of starvation, that's always necessary, or gluttony just before puberty. It appeared that the overcalex grandfathers were somehow passing down a brief but important childhood experience to their grandsons. Brigren knew that there is a suggestion that would be received by some of his peers as scientific hypocrisy, treason, and the DNA sequences are passed down. Experiences, after all, are supposed to die with the individual. Still, the longevity findings in the overcalex study were so consistent and produced that Brigren and the two colleagues he had been working with began submitting them to scientific journals. But it would be over nearly two decades before they appeared. So when he started working with Pembre in 2000, and Pembre was working on the chromosome 15 thing, they worked together and on a number of different issues. But finally, the overcalic study was published in an Italian medical journal. So not a European, I mean, I know Italy's part of Europe, but a not a prestigious, certainly not in the UK, not in the, the Lancet, or certainly not in the United States. And we're talking, this is modern times. So all these journals were approached and they turned them down so that it doesn't exist. This is less than 20 years ago, folks. They finally got it out in an Italian journal and then it became a sensation. 
So what I did in my getting to know this work and how much work it took to come up with this particular conclusion, you also, there's now studies going down the maternal line as well. And the difference between paternal and maternal is just what I told you, boys, gametogenesis developed their sperm at the end of puberty, whereas girls, females, are born with functional eggs. And it's not until they go through puberty do they start releasing the eggs, but the eggs do not change. So the idea that uh, the slow growth period for girls is really back when they're in the womb, it's, and you could say that about boys as well, of course, but it there's its extended way up until puberty is over, so to say. The natural question becomes, you know, Brad Brigham finally published his over K-Lakes data in 2001, and then he and Pembury together came out with a larger study of both works combined in 2006, and now it's like, whoa, and they really set the world on fire with their data and their conclusions, and it was two different cultures, and so it was really hard to turn it away. The natural question became, can the inheritance of epigenetic marks be proven to occur in people such that the environments and the choices of grandparents are affecting the bodies of children? Hmm. You know, it's pretty, it's still kind of hanging by a thread. People got two generations, I don't know about that. So then they, we're not going to get into methylation yet, but well, I'm going to tell you what methylation is, which is the marker that changes some of these things. Methylation is the addition to turning genes on and off. Methylation is actually a major source of genetic mutation. It's considered now, this is how we evolve through these changes. Not just, you know, you could say through what our grandparents ate and didn't eat, but a lot of other influences will cause these methylating marks, these marks on the genes, to turn some genes on or off or to to change them. Pretty interesting. So I sent Dr. Brigham an email and saying I appreciated his work. And if he knew what the diet was of the grandparents, you know, in, in, how could he tell me more about what they ate back then? Because they're up in Lapland. And so I did some research as well. And so in that area, there's a couple things. One is there's four big rivers that are famous for salmon fishing. Anybody who's eaten salmon is probably the best fish you can eat nowadays anyway, that high in omega-3s, and then certainly high in protein. So you had your fats and your protein didn't have much in the way of carbs. So I asked, first, did you, can you tell me what the diet was like? And so he got back. So he got back to me. We're now friends. He's Oli Brigan now. He goes, dear Carl, your mail awakes, your email awakes me thoughts of mine that I have not, that have not been backed. Nutrition in the 19th century, 1800s, are not so well studied are known by me in the province of Norbotnen. I am born in Overcalix in 1936, and I lived there full-time in 12 years. So the traditional food in 1940s, I have experienced much potatoes, much grain and porridges, much milk, much fat, meat, little sugar, no greens as salads, except my family did have a kitchen garden. In 1921 to 30, the first study of the nutrition was carried out in the two northern provinces of that area and was put in English. He feels that the tradition of the 1800s are pretty much pretty similar to when he grew up in the early 1900s. There are courses in adding bark in bread given by the province governors are saying that this is what they did when things got so lean, they put bark in the bread and they call it bark bread. And so some 
of someone born in 1862 who had heard that earlier in the 1700s there had been several years of famine and people had eaten bark bread. Probably he had heard of the 1830s and overcalyx, which was a period of a big famine for six years, 1830s, 36. And the clergy reported every year that the crops were failing, getting worse by year, year by year. That was my first email to him, and that was about six months ago. So then, just recently, I emailed him again, and I thought, you know, I did my own research, went back and said, you know, all right, so what had failed, what was considered a crop failure, what was considered a, fa- a documented famine, right, was that their crops had failed. But were, the, were they ever tallying salmon? What was their, you know, there were some animals they could hunt and shoot, and it was famous for salmon. So I was thinking, well, how far back does this salmon fishing come? And it's so, actually, it was fairly easy. So I found even back in the 1400s, salmon fishing was such a thing that they actually had to tax the salmon fishermen. You know, it was basically putting a tax like on their harvest. So it goes forward in time, you know, 1400s, 1500s, even up into the 1600s of the different governments that were there. So I, I forwarded that to Dr. Brigham. So here's the second email, which I recently got back because last week, sent him on and say, hey, you know, salmon fishing is pretty popular in that part, was pretty popular and still is very popular in that part of the, um, it's the Bering Sea, but that area of ocean between Finland and Sweden is called the Bothnian Bay. And there's four rivers that lead into it and they're famous salmon fishing rivers. But what's more interesting is they have Atlantic salmon, which you probably would expect, but they have a thing called Baltic salmon, which are the biggest salmon in the world. So it's not just that they have them, they have the largest salmon in the world. I used to live in the Northwest for a period of about seven uh, almost eight years, we got to see the salmon migration to the Northwest, and it was phenomenal. They now being in Sweden, they had regular food, and my thinking was they, they can't be ignoring some of the best food sources in the world, you know, back then, and certainly there was a history. So I sent this, this article with a few parts, you know, marked up, and he goes, Dear Carl, fascinating what you sent me. Grandfather's exposure to poor crops in childhood protected the grandsons from cardiovascular health and diseases and, and death. Say that a salmon diet had induced heredity. It is a diet advocated for. I have now gone back another generation to great-grandfathers and great-grandsons and run the analyst, analysis that you saw in the preprint. And because there was specific protein sticking out, you can make something of it. The exposure was in the middle of the 1800s. And so he, he said, he's now looking into the history of salmon. He goes, did uh, salmon salting begin? So he, then he talked to the colonization in the North was interesting to read of. He was born at, over Calex, of course. And his ancestor, Henrik, settled in the Sami village there in the 1400s. 300, for 300 years, they had cohabitated with the Laplanders, we'll call them. But then intruders kept the Samis out by, by weapons. And then he goes into Swedish a little bit. So that's interesting. So nothing is definitive, but it is uh, really interesting that, that the famine years were actually a swing to call it a more keto nutrition, that it was primarily uh, fish. And what a great source. Because ancestral diets, you've heard me talk about it, is really fish-based. And who knows what else they went to. So I see it. It's the lesson behind the lesson is that 
it's really about a high carb diet, even though he said he had, there was meat in there, but he said high potatoes, high grains, you know, high porridges, uh, some fat and some meat. Well, we do know the worst diet you could possibly have is high fat and high carb. It sounds like the degree he had high fat from, that would be cow's milk and whatever meat, fat that came from the meat, but I think it's more in the milk, might have been one of the things that set that generation off that group of pre-puberty boys and their slow growth period off to diabetes and cardiovascular later on. Isn't that interesting? So that's all. So that's how you, you know, you further these thoughts. So back to the work that he did. So it came out in 2002 and the summaries are that he had is that, you know, he found that adolescents who grew up during famines tended to have children and grandchildren that lived markedly longer lives sometimes as much as 30 years or longer. The descendants of those who grew up during bountiful harvest lived significantly shorter lives due to higher rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and obesity. The study suggests that epigenetic changes can be mediated, changed, modeled by environmental factors. In other words, it's not an etched in stone. Things happen along the way that change what you pass on to your kids. So in those that were in the critical periods of development. Okay then, so that was groundbreaking in 2002, came out in 2006 with Prembury, which emphasized that and now put in more studies and often they go. So we had the famine, the Dutch famine came out in 20, the first data came out in 1976. This is now, should have come out four years later in 1980, but he went through nearly two decades of being denied, turned away, and so on and so forth. Can you imagine that? Two decades. Imagine 20 of your years, here you are still working away. Somehow you're keeping your job, but this is the project. This is your life work that nobody's recognizing. Very similar to the story that I mentioned of Dr. Kilmer Cully and the whole homocysteine aspect. I go back and pass podcasts if you have not heard about that, but he'd weathered, never, he was actually fired from Harvard and his lab closed. He was made a pariah. Initially, he was praised, and then in the U.S., the pharmaceutical companies teamed up against him. But the fact that his papers had been also published in the U.K., um, but Europe, made him a hero abroad. And so, because he was getting such acclaim abroad, they had to re-recognize him in the United States. Poor Harvard. So, I am going to leave you on that, because I think it's pretty straightforward. A lot of work that he did. He had a team up with Dr. Prembury. It was neat to have an email correspondence with him. And I find it's very exciting to find out what this was. You know, these are smart people willing to do the diligence of just data gathering, going back into chronology to sort of weed through all this and saying what is possible. So we're going forward into what is epigenetics, how it applies to us. Because I know you hear me talking about, well, it's the kids and slow growth periods. But if you're all adults that are listening to me, which I'm assuming is 99.9% of you, that, so what can you do about this? What have we heard so far? We've heard always about diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular, right? This was the thing that they all picked up, whether it was the Dutch famine, now this, or they were healthy. Interesting. Hmm? As I say, why is it not something else? We've been hearing the word about methylation. We're going to get into that a little bit. And there is something you can do. We're getting to build the mystery with you all. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. 
Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.